Hi there, this is Stuart McKee, host of Musicians FAQ Podcast. Please join me weekly where we have music and chat with some of Canada's hottest artists. That was the James Anthony Band with Some People Get It. James just happens to be my very special guest this week. My name is Stuart McKee, and this is Musicians FAQ. My guest this week has been a working professional musician for over 50 years. He played school dances in the 60s, and he played reggae in the early 70s before most people in Canada even heard of it. He's played with over 200 legendary musicians from country, blues, rock, R&B to soul. He's a member of the American Blues Hall of Fame, and he's our very special guest with us here today. Please welcome to Musicians FAQ, James Anthony. 
James, how are you, man? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Great. Well, I'm glad you. I'm glad you could make the show today. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it. Been been wanting to talk to you for a long time. I've been a big fan of your music, and uh, ever since I think the Rogers Twenty Show way back is the first time I saw you. And I mean, now we're talking about before the show. You and I were just chatting about how things are hopefully going to open up and live music will start again. But before that, let's go back to the very beginning. Uh, where were you born? I'm from Etobicoke, but I was born in Toronto. Okay. Uh, was born in Toronto Western downtown. I'm not even sure where it is, but it's one of the big hospitals in downtown Toronto. Right. And we lived above. My dad was a barber, and we lived above his barber shop when I was a baby. And he he had a, he had a shop just down the street from CBC, the original CBC headquarters. Okay. And uh, a lot of the people that worked at CBC would get my dad to cut their hair. He was a full time barber since you know since he's fairly young. He came over from Italy in 1927. Can you can you imagine that? Yeah, that's that's crazy. You know, when you think uh, about it. I was wondering. I mean, I knew there's some Italian in your background. I've got Italian on, on on one half as well, and I was wondering how recent or how long ago your family actually came over. My dad came over in 1927, and back then you had to sign up for a job, or you couldn't come over. And he worked on the Winnipeg Railroad for five years, driving spikes into the ground. Can you imagine? Driving and buy, buy it with a with a with a hammer, like you know, in those old slave movies. He did that for uh, he did that for five years, and then one day, one of his uh, cousins said to him, "Hey, why don't you become a barber? It's not so hard on you." And he went, "Where do I go?" And so he <laughs> sent over to New York to a cousin, and he he apprenticed my dad. And my dad lived in the states for a few years and learned how to be a barber. He told me they used to shave balloons. That's how you learn how to do. You remember the straight razor? Yeah, you had to yeah. shake balloons. If you broke the balloon, you failed. Wow! So that's wow. pretty cool. So anyway, he learned how to become a barber, and he moved to. Uh, he actually got deported. He was going. This can I tell the story? Yeah, of course. He was seeing a woman in uh, the states, and I guess one of her. I guess her boyfriend was getting out of jail or something, and he was one of these guys, you know. So my old man was warned, like you better get out of town. So my old man actually. At three in the morning, went over to the Niagara Falls side, three guys in a rowboat, and they, and they rowed over to Canada. True story. And they got over to Canada. And this is before they had, you know, you didn't have uh, radar, you know, you couldn't find it. I mean, this is at three in the morning, pitch black, rowing over, rowing over the river. So he came over and he met my mom in Toronto and he became a barber and he opened his own shop. And his claim to fame was that he cut Lauren Green's hair every second week when Lauren was an uh, announcer. Yeah. So every time fans would come on TV, my old man would go, hey, it's my buddy over there, you know. That's so cool. That's a great story. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's family stuff, you know. Yeah. My grandmother, uh, I heard, this is funny, I heard it last week. During the Depression, my grandmother made bathtub gin and sold it out the back door to, to keep seven kids, to yeah. keep the family fed. She used to go to the, the uh, fruit market on, on, in the weekends and buy all the fruit and vegetable that was turning. And she'd bring it home and make make booze out of it and had a little distillery in the basement. And she used to sell out the back door and kept the kept the family going through through the whole depression era. Man, that, that's a colorful background. Those are very yeah, yeah, it, it was funny. We didn't even know that we were Italian on my mom's side for many years. She was born in Montreal, grew up in Montreal. Um, the last name was Marcel, and they yeah. thought they were French Canadian, but apparently, you know. When, they, when their family was uh, arriving on the scene, it wasn't very 
cool there's a lot of discrimination against italians and things so they took the vowel off the end it was actually their last name was actually marcella um, but she didn't find that out until many years later so she was in her 30s and she ran into an uncle that she hadn't seen since she was a child and he told her the whole family story and yeah my dad had a field day with that and uh, you know apparently you gotta remember you gotta remember during the war uh or after the war italians were not liked no i mean they, they my mother told me stories of her walking down young street and people like spinning on them yeah like oh yeah it was it was brutal it's funny how every every race or every every type of uh you know, nationality has its has a bad twenty years or has a bad ten years. You know, where they have to they have to be looked down on for a while, and then all of a sudden that's over, and then then they look for somebody else to look down on. It happens, you know, through throughout history. You know, but you know, my last name is an Anthony. That's my middle name, and uh, my real name is Pecchia. Okay. And in Italian, you know what it means? It's no. a bee. It's a beekeeper. Oh, so my family goes back two thousand years to Rome. Where my family, I guess my great great, you know, my grandfathers uh, were basically beekeepers. They they had, and back then they didn't have electricity, so you needed candles, you had honey, you had flax, whatever the bees made. It was a uh, it was an industry, and they the whole town were bee, beekeepers. A little place called Campo de Mela, which means a uh, honey camp. Okay. It's just outside of Rome. So that's my that's my my history. So all my guitars. This past couple of years, we get a couple of custom-made guitars. Right on the 12th fret there, I put a little bumblebee, just a little, it's my little thing I've been doing. So, yeah. Very nice. You kind of need to go back and look at all that. You need your roots. You got to have that. You, you do, absolutely. No, and and it's, you know, it's funny. As, after my parents passed away, I kind of, you know, I reflected and thought, I wish I'd really paid a lot more attention to some of these stories, but. Uh, absolutely. You know, it's so. You know, the old people know everything. They know all that. And and we didn't, we didn't want to hear them because we were teenagers and we just want to. You know, right. around and have fun. And, yeah. and if you listen to the old guys, man, they had good stories. They did. They did. I had an uncle from uh, that. You know, he would have been in his. Oh God! Well, we'll give an example. My mom and dad were. My dad was forty-five when I was born. So think about it. When I was ten, he was fifty-five years old. He had no patience for a kid. And my mother was forty-two when I was born. So all my cousins were ten years older than me, or. 15 years older than me and all my relatives were little old, little old ladies and little old men. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want to hang around with them. I wanted to go out and you know, hang around with my second cousins yeah. who are my age now, which is really weird. So it's kind of hard being, uh, being like, you know, with your parents that much older, most parents are in their twenties when you're born. Right. My parents are like 45. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, same boat for us. I was 44 when I had my son. So it's almost the same as your dad. And my wife was a little bit younger at 38, but, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of our friends have kids in university. Some of our friends are becoming grandparents, and we're just you and, I, you and I are younger. Forty-five. You know, when we were forty-five, or you're forty-five, we were younger than our parents were yeah. at forty-five. They were oh, yeah. almost little old people. You know. Yeah. No, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, you have you know Bob Dylan and the Stones and all those guys turning eighty this year, and you know they're they're certainly not looking like little old men now. <laughs> Well, they don't act like it. <laughs> no, they don't act like it. Maybe, well, Keith Richards maybe looks like it, but <laughs> yeah, Mick, yeah. Mick must be dying his hair, but he did have open heart surgery recently. So, um, so overall, I mean, how, so all this going on, uh, you know, obviously hanging out with your friends and picked up the guitar. I mean, how was your childhood? Well, it was normal until I was 13. And then I don't know, being a European father, it's like when you're 13, you're, you're a man. 
So go, go get a job, learn a trade, do this, go out and, you know, pretty soon you're going to be out of the house getting married, like 13, and they're putting that stuff on you. So I, I basically uh, had a hard time because the Beatles came out in, what, in 65, they were really big. And my dad, being a barber, was really not happy because men used to get their hair cut every two weeks yeah. and shaved. They used to get the, you know, the hot towel shave and the whole, the whole nine yards. He had five guys working for him. He was making a lot of money. He was doing good. Then all of a sudden the Beatles came out and he walked in the door one day and he said, those goddamn cockroaches. So what are you talking about? <laughs> them, them cockroaches from England. Nobody gets their haircut anymore. I'm losing my shirt. So he had to let three guys go. So he ended up him and another guy or, and two, two other guys. And, and he was broke. I mean, he wasn't making the money he did. Everybody got their hair long, including this guy. I had my hair down to here. So, I mean, he hated us. He hated hippies. He hated the whole, that whole thing that happened. And uh, when I was 20, he actually offered me the barbershop. And the last thing I wanted to do is, you know, take over the barbershop. So I was a big disappointment. You know, I didn't have a real job. I didn't want to be a barber. So I ended up uh, 17 years old, 18. I was sitting on my bed one day. My old man walked in the room and he said, me and your mom are moving. What are you going to do? That was it. I went, oh, oh. So there was an ad in the paper. Back then, Toronto Star had the classified, classified ads. So I'm going through the paper. And it's like, soul band looking for guitar player must travel. Oh, I like that. So I called and I went down to St. Clair, some little club, and I auditioned for uh, Jay Douglas. You heard of Jay Douglas? Still around. Yeah, no. Nominated for Junos. He's still going. Anyway, Jay, Jay uh, heard me, and the first thing he says to me is, can you play Shaft? You remember Shaft? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, here, hold on. I am right. Well, I don't have a Wawa pedal on me, okay? Forgive me. But I'll do it on, but it, you know, it went like. But anyway, that Wawa part, I had a Wawa pedal, so I got the gig. So here I am, I'm a kid, I'm, I'm like, you know, barely 17, and I'm going on the road with uh, an eight-piece soul band with Jay Douglas fronting the band, and I was on, I mean, the first gigs we did were two months in Halifax, you know, and so I spent, uh, I spent four years roughly on the road playing reggae before anybody even heard of reggae, you know, you're talking 71, 72 here. Nobody yeah, heard shot, of reggae. Clapton hadn't even released I Shot the no, Sheriff. Not even, we, were, we, were, we invented this stuff in Canada. I mean, we were playing it. And uh, I'll show you a little thing for fun. Because, as you know, when you, when you listen to reggae music, there's a guy doing this. Okay? Well, the other guitar part, they, they were in the studio, and they said, Mon, come up with something. So I was going... I go, I play B.B. Kinglets with a Wawa pedal. So anyway, next thing you know, a couple of years later, all this stuff's coming out of Jamaica, and it's got the B.B. Kinglets with the Wawa pedal, and it's got the little, and I know that we did that in Toronto back in 71 and 2. Can't prove it, but Jay, Jay will tell you that was us guys. We were kind of like the first guys to play this stuff around here.
I got off the road and uh, I went into soul bands. I, I was I was always like the the token Italian guy in the soul band, you know. And I did that up until probably the early early middle seven well the late seventies. And I had a band called Mondo Combo. We had a one album on RCA. We we had we had it made. We were played Massey Hall. Like yeah, wow. I heard of those guys? And I don't think I'm not sure if I realized you're in that band, but I remember hearing. Yeah, I, I was one that wrote all the songs. 
John Dickey and I wrote all the tunes basically. We're and I wasn't I wasn't singing yet really. I was only just you know I want to be Jeff Becker. I want to be the guitar guy. Right. And I didn't really start singing until probably like you get into the eighties when I I left Mondo Combo and I and I got a call. There was a club called the Heritage Inn in Rexdale, and there was a, a really really good country band, and they were bringing in all the up and coming Nashville stars to be. And I got offered, like, the money was stupid good, so I took the gig. I did that for about a year. And then I spent almost 10 years playing country. I did. I played with, like, you know, the Ronnie Prophets and the Tommy Hunters and all, Michelle Wright and all the country Canadian people. And I did that up until around uh, 89. And then one day I'm sitting around, and the keyboard player says, he says, well, what kind of music do you like to play? I said, I like everything. I like jazz, blues, country. I like everything. No, no. If you could only play one kind of music, what would you play? I said, well, I've always gone back to country blues, which is acoustic guitar. You know, the, you know, the the old blue Delta blues stuff. That's my, I love that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, he says, you're fired. (laughs) So it was two weeks. Do your own thing. Two weeks before Christmas. No New Year's Eve gig. All the Christmas gigs got canceled. I got fired. And I was going, oh, what am I going to do now? I, I got a house and I got a wife and a kid on the way. And, oh, you know, what am I going to do? So thank goodness I got a phone call. I ended up at Lulu's. I was there quite a long time. I threw most of the 90s, you know. So that, I mean, saved, that just saved me. Yeah, I bet. Well, and it's incredible as I'm following along with, I mean, even going back to the Beatles story, which is, which is great. I mean, everybody knows kind of the cultural impact that the Beatles had on music and, 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 and dress and style and everything in the sixties with the influence and people growing their hair. And then it became beards after that. Nobody, yeah. really, nobody's really stopped to look at the other socioeconomic impact, like people like your father, where their businesses are impacted because nobody's getting their haircut anymore. Uh, <laughs> like, and the clothing way. business, oh, everything, everything suffered. Uh, the shoe business suffered. Everybody wanted beetle boots. Yeah. You know, yeah. Nobody sandals. Wanted, oh, yeah. It was like, it was terrible. Like, I, they, they did a lot for music, but they, they kind of messed up a lot of the other side of the culture, which is, I guess, the way it is every 10 years that happens. Yeah, sure. And, it, and it's interesting when you're talking about with the reggae, too, because I would imagine, I mean, and we've seen over the years, you know, a lot of people will get credited with being the king of this or the pioneer of that or things start there. But when you dig in, you always find out it's not just one person coming up with something. I don't know, there's a lot of stuff floating around in the ether. I mean, and, you know, maybe somebody caught your band somewhere and kind of caught that vibe that you guys were doing. And then that kind of went over to England and becomes this big reggae thing. But it, it's really cool to kind of see how, like, when you're there at the beginning and that early in it and, and playing through the 60s and the 70s, it's really kind of a seminal period. That, well, you got to remember that, that we, uh, back in those days, th- there were a lot of Jamaicans living in Toronto. I mean, it was primarily most of Jamaicans of Canada lived in Toronto. And um, we were kind of like the wrecking, you know, you heard of the wrecking crew. Yeah. They yeah, played on everything, yeah. you know, in, in L.A. The, the West Coast uh, session players, the Glenn Campbell and the boys. And yeah, yeah. Well, we were kind of like the wrecking crew for the, the Jamaican community playing the reggae stuff. I mean, we went through. A lot of the uh, the big Toronto artists actually recorded in these little tiny studios all up and down 
Queen Street, and we were the guys that they would call to play on their on their recordings. And a lot of those recordings ended up going back to Jamaica, and then they played the heck out of them over there, and then they ended up going over to England. So we were kind of on, I bet you I was on hundreds of reggae, reggae sessions that I haven't even heard, because yeah. they never gave you a copy. Like, you go in and you get your 100 bucks for the afternoon or whatever you got paid for the afternoon, you never see it again. You never hear about it again. Yeah, it'd be really interesting uh-huh. to be able to trace some of those ones back and find out, you know, which ones you were actually part of and and, and who listened to them. You know, did, did the Whalers and Peter Tosh and, and, and Bob Marley and those guys actually hear some of this stuff? I mean, it's, it's... I'm trying. I got a couple that I found. There was an artist named uh, Mighty Pope. I don't know if he's still around, but we played on his stuff. Nana McLean, mm-hmm. she was another artist we played on. Then there was a guy named Pluggy Satchmo who, who did Louis Armstrong music to ska. Nice. He, would, he would do like New Orleans Louis Armstrong tunes, but he did the ska beat. Right. There was a guy named the Mighty Sparrow. He was a Calypso, yep. Calypso king. All these guys came into Toronto, and we used to back them up at the Caravana. You know, we used to back the, we learn all the material and go and back them up for the night. And So my whole history basically is I've been a sideman forever, like, you know, backing up people forever. That's what I've done. I really never had my own band until quite later in life, you know. Which yeah. is a great school and a great education. I mean, you know, you learn all these different styles. You've got to be disciplined. You got to be quick. You got to be yeah. adaptable. And it's not fun, by the way. People well, say to me, "Oh, you know, well, you're lucky. You know, you got to play at Lulu's. You got to play in the, in the studio. Must have been a lot of fun. It wasn't fun. It was really hard work. Yeah. And if you're not naturally inclined to different styles it, it can be a real test because sure. you gotta you gotta nail it you don't you don't have all day to mess around you gotta nail it you know if, if the clock is if the clock's going uh the producer generally wants to get you in and out of there and get it done as quick as he can because the client doesn't always have a lot of money i've only had one situation where the producer got mad at me because I, I nailed it too fast like I, I nailed it in like 20 minutes and he said hey man uh the guy's paying by the hour. You got to go a little slower. You <laughs> <laughs> never, never called me back. <laughs> you know, and what you're talking about, the country blues. I mean, a lot of the acoustic stuff yeah. that you do, that's what I've always loved about your playing. I mean, I love the electric stuff. I mean, you can wail, but I really love a lot of the acoustic stuff. Is there, what, what's a favorite song or kind of a... a well, the first guys I heard, the first guys I ever heard when I was around 12, 13 were, uh, it was a guy down the street from uh, where, I, where I, I used to hang and his... And he had the biggest record collection, like you wouldn't believe, but it was all Lead Belly, Sonny Terry, Brown and McGee, uh, Lightning Hopkins, uh, Howlin' Wolf and Muddy, all the acoustic albums. That's the stuff that I went nuts over. Right. I didn't care. I, I never been a rocker. You know, it's funny. People people won't believe this, but I, I never really been in a rock band. I was, in a, I mean, maybe when I was 15, there was a short period where I, I played in a couple of bands. We played some rock, but I never really played in a rock band. I've always been like real roots, rootsy kind of stuff, you know? And I I love acoustic because uh, what happened, if I can fast forward to the middle 80s, uh, early 80s, I should say, I got to a point where there weren't a lot of great gigs. The gigs kind of run out sometimes because you have a band or somebody calls you and you do a tour and the tour might be five weeks and then you come back and you don't have a gig. And one day I found myself sitting around. I was living on Broadview and Danforth in Toronto. And uh, I had, I didn't have a gig. I mean, I, I, the phone wasn't ringing and I'm sitting there going, Oh, what do I do now? So I grabbed my acoustic guitar and I knew about maybe 30 songs. So I went down to the corner bar and knocked on the door and talked to the guy there and said, look it, 
can I do a Wednesday night jam night where I just come in and I'll play acoustic and we'll advertise other people can come up and play. And yeah, I'll give it a try. I did that for like a year. So, you know, that, that saved my life. Like I was able to keep, you know, while I was looking for other projects, I could go around and, and play around Toronto on a Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, doing my little jam nights and my acoustic open mic things. Still doing it. Thursday nights, I still do one in uh, Burlington. Can you, play us, can you play us one of those songs? Oh, uh, yeah. What do you want to hear? Let me see. Not to put you on the spot, but. Uh... No, you're not putting me on the spot. Uh, how about a Bob Dylan? How about a finger picking Bob Dylan tune because he turned 80? How's that? Yeah, you it's, got it. It's, it's that style. Close the line. Close the shades. You don't have to. Cause I'll be your baby tonight Turn the lock, do not fear Pass that bottle over here Cause I'll be your baby tonight Mockingbird gonna sail away so forget it, big bad moon gonna shine like a spoon. Don't forget it, you just might let it take your shoes off. Do not fear, bring that bottle over here. Cause I'll be your baby tonight. Cause I'll be your baby tonight. Bob there. It's one of my favorite Bob tunes, actually. That's that's great. great. Song. Yeah, it's a really great song. Well, I mean, he's he's you know, he went through that period, uh, kind of I guess in the 80s as well, and just he went back to his roots and started really doing a couple albums in a row of just that old style kind of music. It was great. Uh, so many artists. Well, I always that, end up on the couch finger picking. That's what I I've been doing that ever since I've I've been off with the COVID. I find myself, you know. I'll just sit around doing that for hours. <laughs> I got the TV on, I got the sound off, and I'm just doing that all night, you know? Yeah, yeah. The guitar never leaves your side. So so when did you first pick up the guitar? Uh, when I was about eight years old, my dad uh, my dad uh, uh, used to have me come to the barbershop, and I used to sweep the floor on Saturday afternoons. I used, used to get, like, uh, guys would throw me quarters and dimes and nickels, and i go around sweeping the hair, you know? And one day... Uh, 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 I don't know if you know this or not, but most barbershops have a little room in the back where the guys play cards and they have their, they got their Italian uh, anisette or they got some rye or, you know, whatever they drink, some wine. My dad had a wine cellar in the basement too. But anyway, you got these old guys and they're in the back playing cards all day. And uh, one day, I guess my dad won a guitar in a poker game or, you know, one of the games at the table. And he brought home this old harmony and it was brutal. I mean, the action was like, you know, one of these, like, you know, you could throw it, as I will say, you could throw a dog under it, you know. And he brought it home and I kind of stared at it for about a month. And I'm looking at this guitar in the corner and he had a book 
and the book was uh, the Alfredo guitar method, but it was written in Italian. So, you know, like, like forget about it. Right. So I open up the book and it had diagrams of, of a neck and it had the dots where you put your fingers. Well, it didn't tell you what finger to put the, to put the uh, dot on or to put, you know, on the neck. So basically I just followed the dots and I made up my own chords and, and I learned within a month I was playing <laughs> Young Love by Sonny James, which was a big hit. I was playing that and uh, I was watching Beverly Hillbillies one morning and uh, Roy Clark was on oh, and Roy yeah. Clark had the short pants and he was cousin Roy, right? Yeah. And he was playing all this bluegrass stuff. I went out of my mind. I thought he was great. So I, I, I you know, the first on Scruggs on there too. And oh yeah, but Roy Clark was yeah, he Roy, was like Roy was just a master. He was my guy, man. I want to be Roy Clark, you know. I want to play like that guy. So anyway, we went over to Italy. I turned ten in Italy. I was there for two months in the summer, and I came back and uh, I wanted a guitar over there, but my dad wouldn't buy me one. I wanted a good one, and I saw this band in Rome, and they all had the Beatle haircuts. They had silver suits and they were playing help. They were doing like tunes from, you know, the big, big Beatle hits cover band. And they looked, they were in the, the you know, the chicks are screaming. They were going nuts. Well, this is cool. This is really cool. I want to do that. So I came home and I ended up getting a job over at George Murray's music on uh, West Mall and Blur Street. Now here I am, I'm 10 years old, same deal, sweeping the floors, you know, after school, going in there, sweeping the floors. And then I got a job as a dishwasher over at the 401, what was it called back then? The 427 Restaurant and Tavern. And I used to go in there after school and I would wash dishes and I'd make, I don't know back then, I can't remember, three bucks a night, two bucks a night. And I saved it and I saved it and I saved it for like a couple of years anyway. Hold on, three years. I was 13. I went in along McQuaid and I bought my first Stratocaster. It was 300 and something dollars and i was so happy man i worked my ass off you know three years that's a lot of a lot of saving right and i didn't go out i didn't go to movies i i stayed home i was really cool anyway um i was sitting so on that's the front a lot of discipline for a young kid well I, I wanted a guitar that bad and my old man said to me whatever you come up with i'll give you half so like i mean if i come up with 300 bucks i give myself a less paul there was 600 bucks back then 500 bucks right wow so i worked my ass off so anyway i'm sitting on the front porch playing my guitar one day and this guy i knew from school kind of a druggie and uh so i must have been 13 or 14 at the time anyway we went out one sunday my dad was cleaning the eaves troughs and he forgot to put the ladder back in the garage and this guy broke into my house with the ladder and stole my guitar after working for three years sweeping floors, washing dishes. He, he stole my guitar and I knew who it was and I couldn't prove it anyway. So my sister and my best friend at the time, Ray lent me 150 bucks each. My dad gave me a little bit of money and I got another guitar. I got my Les Paul and it took me about six months to pay everybody back. But by then I was making 25 bucks a night playing in a band doing, you know, I don't know if you remember this, but um, you're a little younger than me, but all the high school dances, what they, every weekend to be a high school dance where they had bands. Yeah. Everybody go to high school dance. Well, we were playing high school dances. So we make, you know, we get a hundred bucks for like four guys. Pretty good. So anyway, we, we, I ended up paying everybody back and I got myself uh, Les Paul and 
never looked back. I've been doing it since, you know. Yeah. But I've been I've been I've been a guitar freak ever since then. I've been collecting since I was fifteen. How many and, guitars uh, you up to now? Not telling you on there. <laughs> <laughs> I can show you. I can show you my most special one. And and then you're making yeah, and you're making your own guitars too. That, yeah, that's because of COVID. This is a this is the like a Birdland. That's what Roy Clark played yeah. when I saw him on TV when I was a kid. Beautiful. This is a Birdland. I finally got one. Finally got one of these. That's a handmade guitar. Freaking beautiful, gorgeous guitar. Like a violin. It's your own Stradivarius. It sure is. It sure is. Yeah, it's something else. Took me, took me until I was sixty-five to get one. Well, I think I figure I got about another ten years before you know. I, I figure I can I can keep keep doing this for a while. I hope. Yeah. Yeah, it's calling me, so that's good. Well, yeah. I mean, I think isn't isn't it the dream? I mean, just to die on stage. <laughs> Close enough, <laughs> you know, and, you know, being the blues too, I mean, all those blues guys, they just played it right to the end. I mean, I, I think that's what the Stones always kind of references that, you know, why would we, why would we retire Muddy and those guys? They played right up to the end. So uh, you can't help it. What else are you going to do? You don't know any, we don't know any, any other way. Like, you know, this is what you do.
How you doing? It's James Anthony. You're listening to Musicians FAQ on CKMS 102.7. Support live music. Thanks so much. Anybody in your family musical? My dad played guitar, but he basically played Italian songs. Okay. Not great. He wasn't a great player, but he was he was an interesting character because he could play any instrument. He could play something on every instrument. Didn't matter what it was. Right. He'd pick up a trumpet and he could play you something. He'd pick up a clarinet, he'd play you something. He's just very musical guy. And I know that when he was really young, he used to make flutes out of pieces of wood. Because my one of my cousins told me that in Italy. He used to carve out pieces of wood and make little flutes and stuff out of them. So I guess, you know, he was into it. But, but you know, he was a, like old school. You know, you got to have a real job and go out and work with the family. And, you know, I don't, I can't see my own man, you know, doing anything different. You know, that was that, that's his whole, sure. his whole family are like that. I'm the only musical guy in the family. That's it. Me, you know. You said you were late getting into the singing. So, so when did the, so the whole singing thing, like when you got your own band, it just became... A thing that you needed to do. Eighty-six. Yeah, uh, I was I was still playing country, and I started getting asked to open up for people. Like they'd say, "Could you do like two songs before the star guy came up?" Sure. And I go sure. So I go up and do a couple of Merle Haggard tunes or a Willie Nelson tune or something. Or and and I ended up doing radio shows and doing a lot of like TV shows, a lot of live concerts. Opening up for like everybody. I mean, just I'm the I'm the guy that went up and good evening, you know, two songs, and I'm I'm and I go back behind the amp and I'm I'm the rhythm guy the rest of the night, you know. Right. And I I got I got to enjoy that. I didn't mind that. I never wanted to be the front guy. It's too much pressure. I hated that. I didn't want to do that. You know? And you've got original songs now. When did the writing start? Uh oh, I've been writing since I started playing. Y'all, that's just came with it. And I, I've always sang. I just didn't really want to sing for a living. I didn't want to be the like I say. I didn't care if I was the front guy. I was always the guy that did one or two songs, and then the then the main guy would come up. I've done that for forty years, and then now all of a sudden, like oh, holy smokes, you know, I'm the front guy. Now was so, any of that because you didn't like your own voice, or it wasn't? It was just you'd rather just play guitar. All of the above. I think I think musicians are the most insecure people that walk the earth. Maybe other than actors, yeah, absolutely. actors are probably worse. Yeah, yeah, no, but I don't I don't like anything I do. It's funny, you know. Like I'll I'll listen to a, I'll I'll do an album. I'll spend you know four months or three months recording an album, and when it's done, I I don't listen to it. I hear it a year later. Yeah. Might hear it a year later and go, oh, that's pretty good. Who's that? And I go, oh, that's me. You know, like this, I've had that happen to me where I've been at a friend's party. And backyard and then barbecue and they put one of my cds on and i haven't heard it in three years <laughs> you know? well you know I've, I've amassed a whole collection of tapes and, and recordings over the years i've been writing for a long time but that'll happen from time to time i'll dig back in the archives and kind of dig something out and going was that actually me playing or singing or is that somebody else that i was jamming with that day and i don't you know i don't remember that song but it's just yeah it's crazy you know what it is i think the bottom line is i love doing it I don't care about the I don't care about the other stuff. I love to play music. I love to play the guitar. I love to write songs. It's all about the doing it. Uh, it you know, like getting getting the awards and people patting you on the back and everybody telling you how great you are. Like, oh, who cares? That means nothing. It's it's actually doing something that you love is is more is more fun for me, more pleasurable than actually 
you know, all the other stuff like the Juno Awards. I don't care. I, I never worried about stuff like that. And and because of that, a lot of people say, well, see, what advice would you give like a young up, up-and-comer singer musician? Do it because you love it. Don't do it because you want something out of it. Yeah. I've done I've done really well. I mean, here I am at my age. I mean, I look I, I can look back and say, wow, it's been a long road, but I, I I ended up okay. I ended up fine. And the thing is, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen uh, uh, very fast. It's 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 daily. Like one day you wake up, the phone rings. You, you answer the phone. You go to a gig. You get prepared for the gig. You do the gig. You do that every day. Like you don't think about last week and what am I going to do tomorrow? And you just basically it, it's what's that what's that old saying? Seize the moment. Yeah. You're in in the day into the into the moment. Do that and do it as best you can. And That's eventually, great. eventually the name gets around and people are looking yeah. for a guitar player, an opening act, or this or that, and they go, oh, yeah, there's, there's that guy. I mean, yeah, I think the more people you work with, for sure, the name is. It's a it's a if you've got the talent and you and you're persistent, it's going to happen. Well, you wouldn't believe the agents uh, when I started out. You wouldn't believe the uh, the agents that said to me. Uh, Hey, listen, you know, you got to have backing tracks, you know, and I can't book you. You don't have backing tracks. So I went out and bought freaking stuff to do the backing tracks. I hated it. I couldn't do it. It was awful. And I said, well, you know, you got to, you got to do top 40, you know, go out there and, and do top 40 and you know, I'll be able to book you. So I learned a bunch of top 40 songs. They still didn't book me. So all every, everything that I've had happen to me is either happened to me because of, uh, I, I pursued it myself or I've been very lucky and a friend maybe requested somebody, Hey, you know, you got to check him out. But I mean, I never had any help from the powers to be, I've done everything on my own. And even the past 20 years, uh, I moved to Burlington. I, I moved from Toronto to Mississauga and then I got the call to go to Lulu's. So I, I sold everything in Mississauga and moved to Cambridge. I lived 17 years in Cambridge while I was in Cambridge, I had a jam night TV show. I did, uh, I played uh, hooches. I did all, I had these steady house gigs for like the whole time I was there. We started the Kitchener Blues Festival as part of that. I mean, I had all that going on. And then one day when Lulu's closed in 97, I had a, I had a music store. And overnight, I was going through a divorce. Like Lulu's closed. I was going through a divorce. And I lost my house gigs because one of the clubs went bankrupt. Another one, I don't know what happened to it. So everything ended like in like a week or two. It was like I had everything, and then it was just nothing. So my my wife, uh, Kim, said to me, "What are we doing living in Cambridge? Why don't we?" Like Dad just had a heart attack. My father-in-law is Ernie Varga, who was a, a great guitar player for fifty years, and Ernie's the guy that brought up. Uh, Conway Twitty, Lee Von Helm, Ronnie Hawkins, he he helped them come up to Canada. So he had a heart attack, and uh, Kim said, why don't we just move to, to Burlington and be near Dad? I went, okay. So we sold everything in Cambridge and moved here. Well, <clears throat> I got I got really lucky. Uh, I, I got a call to uh, – I got this manager agent who booked me to open up for a lot of the big festivals, like opened up for Bobby Bland and Dave Mason and Dr. John and – while well, we opened up for like, you name it for a couple of years was doing great. And he took me on a tour to Ireland and I signed with universal records in Ireland and my CD room for me, you know, they, they put 5,000 copies out and I had billboards in Ireland. And I went over there on tour. I played for three weeks, three and a half weeks. 
I was supposed to play with Johnny Johnson, Chuck Berry's piano player. Oh, piano player, yeah. Yeah, he died. And at the time I was working, I I, I just finished working about uh, almost 17 years with Denny Doherty. I wrote a bunch of stuff with Denny and recorded it. And uh, Denny died. Johnny died at 82. I found myself coming back from Ireland with 600 bucks in my pocket and no gig, nothing. And I got a house and wife and kids. And so I went into the local bar around here and said, hey, um, why don't you let me do a Thursday night open mic? And I'll come in with a band on Saturday. I'll bring in my three piece and uh, we'll we'll back up like uh, all the, the top local singers. And she said, go ahead, let's do it. I'm losing the place anyway. Please, nobody was going to the place. So we turned it around. I was there for five years. And then I, then I went to another club for five. I went to another club for a year and a half. And then I've been at the Uptown Social now three years. So this is over like 20 years, going over the 20-year period that I've, 18 years that I've lived here in Burlington. So I can't complain. Yeah, everything happens for a reason. <clears throat> I agree. I got a good story to tell you. Can I show you something cool? It's a Lulu story. This is a 1955 Gibson J185. 1980-something, the story, I can't prove this, but I'm just going to tell you because it's a good story. The Everly Brothers played uh, Lulu's, and Don and Phil fought a lot. The story is, this was one of their guitars, and he smashed it on the side of the stage. When they were going, they, he was, they were mad at each other. They had a fight, and he smashed it. So a guy walks into my store about, uh, about 1990. I had a music store in downtown Cambridge, right on uh, Ainsley, called Night Owl Music. The problem was we weren't allowed to get any, we couldn't be a dealer because all the other stores, there's two other stores in town that had dealerships. So the only thing we could do was sell used. So I opened up a vintage guitar slash used, bring in consignment store. And I was doing repairs in the back every day. This guy walks in with the guitar with a garbage bag and he says, want to buy a guitar? 150 bucks. So I bought it. I mean, it was a Gibson. It's got to be worth that, even broken. Uh, so I took it, I took it to a buddy of mine, Donnie Carter up in Sarnia. And Donnie was one of the best guitar builders in, in the Ontario region at the time. And he said, I'll give you two grand for it right now. I said, why? He goes, you know what this is? I said, I don't know. It's old. He goes, it's a 1955 uh, J185. They only made 11 of them that year. He says, this is a really rare guitar. I said, no, just fix it. How much, are you gonna, how much would it cost me? He said, about a grand. I said, just do it. So it took him about a few months. And he gave me a call back one day. And the guitar was ready, and he completely restored it. It was like toothpicks. He took it all apart. He had to glue everything together, fix all the all the breaks. It had a plug in it. He had to fix the hole. Anyway, the thing is stunning. It just turned out beautiful. But that but that that's supposed to be the story of the guitar that the Everly's broke at Lulu's, and I got it restored and I got it in my house. But I can't prove it. I was standing outside, uh, what do you call it? Starbucks in Burlington here a few years ago, and this big tall guy with a cowboy hat on, older guy. And I, and I knew it was Gordy. It was, holy smokes, that's Gordy Tap. Went over and started talking to him. And he says, well, he says, well, who are you? I said, well, I know some, you know, I'm in the country scene for 10 years. I know a lot of guys. And, and I said, here, here's my card. If you ever got nothing to do, he was 91 at the time. So and he's got nothing to do. You know, he's retired. So I said, hey, um, you know, give me a call. Come by the studio one day. So he came by about two weeks later and he sat on the couch and told me jokes and uh, he was doing this on the average of every few weeks. He would just drop in and visit me. Anyway, one day he, he's got his cell phone. He's got his phone. Like, and he goes, how did you uh, how did you get into music business? I said, well, I saw Roy Clark on Beverly Hillbillies and on your show. Hee-haw. He goes, hold on a minute. 
Roy, I got this. He phoned Roy on his phone. I got this beautiful eight by 10 and says, any friend of Gordy's is a friend of mine, Roy. And and he signed my Telecaster. He came into uh, the Sanderson Center in Brantford. And uh, I went up on the bus and he signed my uh, Telecaster. So so I got the, that was my, one of my heroes, you know, and Jeff Beck. I was playing uh, at the Forge Tavern in 1978 in Toronto. I was with a band called Charlotte Martin and Dancing Machine. She was this beautiful black girl, did Aretha Franklin. And we had this really hot band, you know, with horns and everything. And during the break, I guess this was about second break, maybe around 1130. No, later than that, it'd be about 12 o'clock, 1215. We'd come off for the second break. I was walking to the men's room and Jeff Beck was sitting there right there having a beer. I went, I just went, whoa, you know. Yeah, I've seen him a few times. He's just, just amazing. Funny, I mean, I missed him when he played in town here a few years back, but I've caught him many times over the years. Got him with Stevie Ray Vaughan uh, years ago before Stevie passed. So, but yeah, just never saw him. But, but I, I actually saw Beck was like two inches from me. I just kind of smiled and he smiled, and that was it. I didn't really get to meet him, but I was like, hey, no. <laughs> you you met quite a few people. I mean, I you know, yeah. and worked with quite a few people. I mean, that's just got to be a blast to to look back on that. And, it's it's pretty lucky, right place, right time. A lot of a lot of the times, yeah, sure. yeah. Well, I think that's you know, it's kind of when you're talking about advice to younger people, and I think really, it's 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 less about words; it's more about actions. I mean, you just kept busy and busy and busy. You just played and took gigs and took gigs, and you know, you pick up the phone, you don't say no, and and things will happen and come your way. I get in trouble for that because I have a hard time saying no. Yeah, I, I love to play, and 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 sometimes you got to remember that you have a family. <laughs> I have to remember that, and you know, my wife reminds me. It's like, hey, it's Father's Day, or it's uh, you know, it's little Schmedley's second birthday. You can't go anywhere today. And now that I'm older, I get it. But when I was 30 years old, man, I just wanted to go and play. I didn't care. So what's on the horizon? So things are going to open up. You're going to start playing. Are you going to have some of the house gigs back? You said. Oh man, it's it's crazy. Today they all came back today. It's like all in one day. I I got too much going on. And it's basically the Uptown uh, is opening this Saturday matinee, uh, 130 to 5. And starting next week, I do Thursday night open mic, 7 to 10. I do Saturday, uh, 130 to 5. And Sunday nights are going to start 6 to 10. And the secret is I have a guest every night. Like Thursday night, I have me and a guest. Saturday, the band with a guest. And Sunday, the band with a guest. And I'm going to be doing St. Catharines at a place called the Burger Works Wednesday nights, playing country blues. That's 530 to 830. Uh, Sassafras in Beamsville, which is a great New Orleans bistro. And that's going to be Sunday afternoons from 12 to 12 to 4. That's for the summer. And then and then I've got Labor Day weekend booked up private parties. I got stuff going on like, wow, I'm happy to be working all the time. Great. Oh, one more thing. Can I say yeah. can I mention one more thing? Okay, I've got a I've got a killer band. I got Bucky Berger on drums. Uh, Bucky was the uh, drummer for Rough Trade. Yes. He also worked with uh, Chilliwack and Dave Wilcox and everybody. He played with Roy Buchanan. Give me a break. That's that's one of my heroes. And Bucky played with him. Uh, Jimmy Rasmussen is from Ann Arbor, Michigan. He's a bass player, and he's worked with like all the greats from that side of the world, all the blues greats. Kim Wilson from the Fabulous Thunderbirds and all those people. So I, those guys have been with me now, believe it or not, eight years. And uh, we're going to go in and do another album with Glenn Domina. He's got a studio in his home. And on this album, I'm going to be bringing in all my friends. 
you know, I don't know if you know Danny B out there, but I'm getting guys like that who are Toronto legend guys, and I'm going to get them all to come on and maybe do a little harmonica part or sing harmony or sure. everybody's going to help me out. Great. That's no problem. No looking problem. forward to that. Well, James, thanks so much for doing this, man. It's been, it's been a blast. I mean, I really got a kick out of uh, hearing some of these stories and get a chance to talk with you and interact with you a bit over the last couple of weeks. I'll certainly be out this summer to see you play. Um, so that just leaves us with that final questionnaire. Are you ready for the 10 questions? Okay, let me see what I can do here. All right, we'll start out easy. What's your favorite word? Inspiration. What's your least favorite word? Following. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, emotionally, any or all of the above? Pureness. A, a pure energy. Pureness. And what turns you off? Uh, jealousy. What's your uh, favorite curse word? Shit. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Hammond B3. All right. What sound or noise do you hate? That phone. <laughs> what other profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I, I actually, before I found out about playing guitar, I wanted to be a chemist. I don't know why, but I love anything to do with micros, microscopes, microscopic things. I probably would have gotten into some kind of chemistry or medicine. Or What profession would you not like to do? Lawyer. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You done good, son. You done good. All right. Well, thank you again. And uh, looking forward to some live shows this summer and that new album in the fall. I can't wait. Thank you so much for your time. That's great. Thank you for listening to Musicians FAQ Podcast with your host, Stuart McKee. We're here every week with great Canadian musical artists 